Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Do you know, I don't think I can ever think of a moment where I've regretted praying. I've never thought, man, I really wish I prayed less today. I've never looked back on my day and said, my only problem was that I prayed too much. I'm reminded of Martin Luther, who before a busy day once said, I have so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Even though I know it's true the prayer is good, that I've never uh, suffered any negative consequences for it, that it's always been beneficial, there are still days, sometimes even multiple ones in a row, that I simply don't. I just don't do it. And I justify it in all sorts of ways. I say, oh, I'm too tired, too busy, too stressed. And maybe you can relate to that. Because I think the sad thing, the sad truth about us humans is that, that many of us turn to God only when things are going wrong. But where are we all those other times? Last week, Deacon David reminded us of the extremely important truth that there is no neutral in the Christian life. Either we're going up the hill or we're sliding down the hill. We're never sitting still. Not only do I agree with Deacon David, but I want to go a step further today and extend his point. The reason that what Deacon David told us is true is because God has providentially ordered each and every one of our lives so that every situation in which we find ourselves, every context in which we inhabit, every relationship we have, and every event that we participate in, either actively or passively, is there to bring us to the beatific vision. Now, we might want to define what that term is, beatific vision. It actually appeared in our first hymn, number 585, in one of the verses that talked about seeing God. The beatific vision is our ultimate end. It's what God made us for. The beatific vision is that moment in the eschaton when we will see God. And scripturally, we have a number of kind of foreshadowings of this. We have a proto-beatific vision in Genesis chapter 2. We know Adam had the privilege of walking with God in the garden. In the book of Exodus, Moses expresses his desire to see God, but of course he's not allowed to see the divine essence purely. God puts him in the cleft of a rock, walks past, and allows Moses to see his backside. Yet still, there is a desire throughout the scriptural witness. Thy face, Lord, will I seek, the psalmist says in Psalm 27. And we get a preview of the beatific vision in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Of course, what exactly the beatific vision means, what it entails, is a bit of a mystery. It's still shrouded for many of us. But to behold God is certainly to find the culmination of our human quest for happiness. We're all looking for happiness. Many of us have traded that ultimate happiness for lesser happiness, but we still are looking for it. It's like St. Augustine said, even the man in the brothel is looking for God. And so if we were created with the beatific vision in mind, we can trust that everything God sends our way is preparing us for it. And so with that in mind, I want to take a look at our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel chapter 39. 
It's important to note that in chapters 38 and 39, Ezekiel is discussing this mysterious character named Gog, G-O-G, Gog. Honestly, most readers of Ezekiel aren't really sure what to do with this character other than emphasize that he is a bad guy. Some scholars and theologians have proposed that he was a 7th century leader or perhaps a composite of leaders who would have led a coalition composed of Israel's enemies. Others have suggested that he's not so much an historical figure as he is some sort of archetype or allegory for those who oppose God by standing against his people. There's probably some truth to both of those readings. The point, however you read it, is that Gog is the bad guy who nevertheless was used by God as a mechanism to judge Israel in the Old Testament for their many sins. Still, this is not an endorsement of Gog. We shouldn't walk away saying, well, he did God's work, so he's a good guy. Quite the opposite. While Gog may have been used as an instrument of divine judgment, his barbarity and evil did not accumulate merit, but divine judgment. And so Ezekiel looks forward to that judgment against Gog, where where God would reverse the fortunes of the people. Israel would be restored and their enemies be vanquished. And I think there are three major points to draw out from the reading that have a bearing on the point that God is guiding us to the beatific vision. The first major emphasis in the reading is that when things went well is when Israel rebelled. When things went well is when Israel rebelled. Their subsequent exile was designed to bring them back to God. Now, in the moment... Punishment usually feels like it doesn't fit the crime. I know this when I was a teacher, you know, and I call down the same student three, four times in class, and then there have to be consequences. I've given you a warning, two warnings, now you get a point deducted or you get sent to the office or whatever. I have to call your parents and students, oh, that's not fair. Certainly punishment is never pleasant, but it is necessary. And Israel's punishment, which was caused by their rampant unfaithfulness to God, was not about retribution or pettiness. It's not like they hurt God's feelings and he was lashing out against them. Rather, it was about God trying to accomplish good in them. Even with limited context, we the readers can determine that Israel is in the middle of the exile based on the anticipation in the reading. And there's this palpable hope throughout that chapter that God will restore the people. Verse 22, towards the beginning of the reading, says, The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. Verse 28, towards the end of the reading, says, Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. They're being brought back from their exile. A second emphasis here that's closely related to the first is that when Israel was in a state of rebellion, they were unable to see God's face. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, have I done unto them and hid my face from them. We can think here of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were sent out from the garden, unable to walk with God anymore in the garden. Israel's sins also earn them ejection from the promised land. It puts up a barrier between them and God. Now, interestingly, there have been a number of suggestions by church fathers 
that the expulsion from Eden in Genesis was an act was actually an act of mercy on God's part because sinful creatures like Adam and Eve could not stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And so just like Moses was prohibited from seeing God's face because it would be too much for him, so Israel's sin caused God to hide his face from them, caused him to eject them from the land, lest the people be totally destroyed. Yet there's hope. There's hope in the reading that the exile would work, that it would bring about the kind of restoration that God desires. And so in the text, we get this promise of all the things that God is planning to do for the people of Israel. He'll destroy their enemies. He'll make them a blessing again to all the nations like they had been. And both the heathen and the people of Israel will know God's actions. But most importantly, there's a restoration of being able to see God. Neither will I hide my face anymore from them. God will make himself known. Further, another gift is attached to this promise. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. This is a promise that's ultimately fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, an event that we'll celebrate sooner rather than later in just a few months at the end of Eastertide. At Pentecost, the Holy Ghost descended on the apostles and has remained with the church ever since, through the apostolic ministry that we exercise and the sacraments that we administer. By pouring out his spirit on Israel, the church, we see the ongoing work of God in the world. He is the agent of transformation, working in our hearts, working in the hearts of those we encounter, in the mouths of friend and neighbor, like we just sung, transforming all of us into the image of Christ. So the Holy Spirit in the church is a fulfillment of the promise made all the way back in the book of Ezekiel. But what does all this mean for us? It's important, I think, to step back and recognize that each and every one of us have very little control over what happens in our lives. We like to think we have control, but we have very little control. We do not always control the opportunities that we're given. We don't control the bad or unexpected events that take things away from us. Nevertheless, it's important to remember that no matter what we're going through, times of prosperity, times of dearth, God has us right where he wants us. In the prayer book, page 321, is the communion of the sick. It's what the priest uses when he goes to do a visit to someone who can't come to church and he brings communion from the reserved sacrament. And the epistle reading during that visit is from Hebrews 12.5. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now you might initially think, like I did the first time I ever picked up a book of common prayer, wow, that seems really harsh to read to someone who's sick. However, the point isn't that God is being mean to us like a big kid with a magnifying glass burning ants. Quite the opposite. Whatever bad things may happen to us, God can and is and will use them for our own good. So the question is not, how can I obey God so that bad things don't happen to me? That's the problem Job and his friends make. It's also the prosperity gospel heresy. The question is, how do I respond to what's in front of me with obedience and faith in Jesus Christ? When something bad happens, we all have two possible responses. We can endure with this faithful obedience, 
Or we can rebel in our hearts. We can blame God. We can harbor bitterness. We can use whatever bad thing has happened as an excuse to do what we want rather than following God. And so I think a final point that deserves to be reiterated now is that everything we encounter is a preparation for the beatific vision. Everything. I was thinking about this on Friday. We celebrated the Feast of St. Patrick, uh, not just by drinking green beer, but by having a service. And the gospel reading appointed for that day is from St. Matthew. It's the parable of the talents. The master goes on a trip, and he leaves one servant five talents, and one servant two talents, and one servant one talent. And the servants with the five and the two talents go to the marketplace where they engage in some sort of speculative trading, and they end up doubling their money. So now they have ten talents and four talents. Whereas the other servant with the one talent buries it in the field. So it doesn't earn any interest. He doesn't gain anything from it. And of course, the point there is that the first two servants were faithful with what they were given. And the third servant simply was not. And I think it's instructive for us. Because whatever God gives us, he asks us to be faithful with. And it may not be uh, situations or circumstances that we would have chosen ourselves. But we have to be faithful with what we're given. And so the question is what we do in those situations God sends our way and whether we'll hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Amen.